and uh, Ryder and I had somewhat discussed that previously. He, he made the right decision, by the way, early. Like, when I previously discussed him, I said, this is what's going to happen. And Ryder said, well, I'm going to give him away. And I said, I know you would, but I wanted you not to be surprised. He, so he made the right decision. It wasn't totally rehearsed. But I thought to myself, as I gave those 12 suckers to that young man, and not to embarrass you, my friend, but there was a time when I wouldn't have handed you those 12 suckers <laughs> for the world. Yeah, there's definitely a time he would not have given them back. That's right. And it is a, but it was just a quick reminder in my own thought process of how we all grow and mature and how there needs to be, we all uh, at times need to hand things over to others that we would have never handed things over to at other points in our life or other points in their life, maybe to be more accurate. Um, there are certainly folks that uh, would say the exact same thing about me. Trust me, that's why I don't invite them to come here. Um, but uh, we all grow, we all mature, and I'm thankful for that, that the Lord has patience with us and that he grants us things all the times that early in our life we would not have been ready for. Um, so anyway, just things that were coming to my mind as I handed those over. If you would, though, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. That has almost absolutely nothing to do with the sermon today. Uh, that was just a bonus. But uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, as I said, I'm a little bit behind all of you in, in your reading. I hope that you're benefiting from that reading and benefiting from those Sunday school discussions. I promise I will catch up very quickly. Um, but uh, we are going to finish up 1 Timothy this morning as we talk about this chapter 6, starting in verse 3 to the end of the passage this morning um, as we do that together. Paul is addressing a few final things, as is often the case when we read one of Paul's letters. That last chapter, those last few verses, are always kind of a summation of what Paul has talked about through the rest of the book, and certainly that is the case here, but they are also uh, some random thoughts that he has in. But I think here in Timothy, though better than maybe some of his other letters, those random thoughts tie together quite well. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So if you are able this morning, would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning? Starting in verse 3 of chapter 6, it says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with, with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and, can take, and cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God. 
of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. And Lord, we again, as always, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that it would never cease to astound us that the God who created all things, the one who is eternal and all-powerful, the one who is holy of holies, the one who is perfectly just and righteous, the one who has dominion over all things, as your word says, would desire to speak with us. Lord, as you control the universe, as you keep it in motion, that you desire to commune and to have fellowship with us as individuals and as a church family. Lord, I pray that we are never stop being in awe of that. Father, help us this morning as we hear your word, as we unpack it, as we try to better understand it, Lord, that it would not simply pass in one ear and out the other, but Lord, that we would have a desire to do it, to see it accomplished in our lives. Father, we pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As I said, Paul here begins to wrap up this wonderful letter in chapter 6. He starts by once again looking at false teachers. This is something that started in chapter 1, and he even says, Timothy, this is why I have put you in Ephesus, is so that you could speak against these things, these false teachers. And so he begins to uh, wrap that up, so to speak. And we're not going to spend a ton of time on this subject in the sense that we have already looked at it in chapter 1 and chapter 4. But just to notice a few things here. Um, a few last words on false teachers. He gives us some ways to identify these individuals. First, he says that they are conceited. He says that they are puffed up. Those that teach something other than the gospel are puffed up with conceit and they understand nothing. Those that 
would teach a false gospel think that everything is about them, that the world revolves around them. The gospel is not the center of their universe. It is not their first love. It is not their desire. It is not their passion. The glory of God is far from their heart and mind. The only thing that they are concerned with is themselves. Paul says this is a great big neon sign of a false teacher. He says not only are they conceited, but they are contentious. That they argue about everything. That they argue about words. And all that does is, it says, an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions, and constant friction. Those that would proclaim a false gospel, one of the marks, beside the fact that they are conceited, that the world revolves around them, is that they cannot stand peace. That they have a desire for there to be chaos. I didn't think of this this week, but uh, as we were going through Sunday school lesson with youth this morning, I I thought of this reference. Um, Many of you have probably not seen this movie, but I'm a nerd, so I have. Uh, A few years ago, uh, there was a Batman movie that came out, and Joker was in it, and they were trying to, of course, Batman was trying to stop Joker and all that stuff. Long story short, the idea, they're, they're trying to figure out what drives the Joker as a person. Because if you know his passion, if you know his desire, then maybe you can stop him before he reaches that. And Alfred looks at, at Batman, because they're totally baffled, and he says, some people just like to see the world burn. They have no greater passion. They have no greater desire. They have no ultimate, ultimate motive. They just desire to see chaos. And that is true of some of these false teachers. That they just enjoy the chaos that comes from argument. That they they just enjoy the argument for the argument's sake. Some of them are contentious because it provides them an ability to be a savior themselves. They do not care about the true problem. They do not care about the true Savior. They want to see themselves as a Savior, so they stir up controversy. They stir up a problem so that they can be the ones that ride in on a white horse with the solution. False teachers are conceited. They think the world's around them. They're contentious, constantly stirring up the pot, so to speak. And they are coveters. They're coveters. He says there that they bring about this contention. And then in verse 5, he goes on to say, they are, they are constant friction among people who are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. They step into the role of the ministry of the gospel, but they do so not for the sake of the gospel, not for the love of Christ, certainly not for the love of others. They step into the ministry of the gospel so that they may find financial gain. We see this around us. We've certainly seen this in times gone by. Individuals, many of whom are on TV or on radio that are constantly asking for money. It was not that long ago that it came across our news feeds that there was one individual who was asking for a 
private money donation so that he might buy a private jet because God had told him he should no longer fly coach. Great, friend. I wish God would call me to the same thing. Like, but obvious desires, right? Obvious desires for wealth. Obvious desires that they may gain financially on, on the back of the gospel. Preaching something that is not true. If you give to me, then you will find grace. If you give generously, you will find blessing in your life. Things that we don't... We don't necessarily see in Scripture in the context that they are presenting them. They use the name of Jesus Christ for financial gain. Now this is not to say that those in ministry don't deserve a wage. We talked about last week in chapter 5. Paul says that the laborer deserves his wages. One who leads well deserves his wages. But the desire of the minister of the true faithful is not that we would find great riches, not that we would use the gospel to find prosperity, but rather that we would know a relationship with Jesus Christ and that we would lead others there as well. These false teachers are conceited, they're contentious, they're coveters. And so as we have been talking about throughout 1 Timothy, how, what is the church to do then? What is the church to do in the face of these individuals, those that would preach a false gospel, those that would act this way? What is our response to that? Our response is contentment. It's contentment. He says there in verse 6, but godliness, in response to godliness as a means of gain, he says, but godliness with contentment is of great gain. For we were brought We brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. That idea of being content, man, that is a difficult thing in our world, is it not? We are not a people of being content with anything. My generation in particular we have this insatiable desire for the new tech. It's like, man, a new iPhone comes out and you would think the world is ending. It's like, my iPhone no longer works. Like, it certainly charges. It certainly makes phone calls. It certainly looks up things on Google just as well as it did a year ago. But by golly, there's a new one. And so we, might, we have a desire that must be fulfilled. We're not content with anything. We're not content with our jobs. We're not content with our financial situation we're not content with our families and so we try to change them even we find a world that desperately desires contentment but can't seem to find it and yet this is to be the mark of the church or a mark of the church paul shares with us a few things here we notice that we are unified by grace we are called into godliness this unifying grace that unites all brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ as we have been adopted into the grander family, into a grander picture. And it is that grace, by that grace, that we find contentment because we understand our needs. By that grace that unifies us, we understand what our need is. And it is not things, but rather it is one. Jesus Christ. 
The church understands its needs. It understands that the greatest need that we have ever had is that we were rebels. We were those that have rejected God, and yet, and we, because of that, we rightfully should stand before a holy and righteous God deserving of a guilty verdict that leads to eternal condemnation. We are in need of a Savior. Nothing else matters. That's why Paul says if we have clothing and food, then we will be content because we understand that those things are just bonuses. We look at them as necessities. We look at food and clothing as basic necessities. Paul says these are the extras. What we need is Christ. And when we understand that God in His grace has given us exactly what we need and we receive it into our lives, then it changes how we view everything. It also changes where we get everything. No longer do we see food and clothing and all of the other material things that we chase after, not only do we, not, not, no longer do we see those as things that we merely earn because of hard work, but rather we see them as blessings from God. Doesn't mean that we're lazy. Doesn't mean we should stop working. Just means that we understand that the outcome is out of our hands. That sometimes God chooses to bless hard work with material possessions, and sometimes He does not. I look at brothers and sisters around the world who are hard workers, hard workers. And yet, for whatever reason, they are not blessed with material things. They worry about where their next meal is going to come from. They worry about how they're going to feed their kids in the morning. They're worried about whether this storm is the storm that blows over their house or if the waters will rise too high. It's not because they are lazy just because sometimes God chooses to bless in certain ways and sometimes He does not. And sometimes He blesses us in certain ways so that we might use those to bless others. God is, is so interesting in how He does things in His kingdom, whether it be the gospel or whether it be material possessions. For some reason, in His great wisdom, He has desired to use us as conduits of those things. Meaning that God could have proclaimed the gospel on His own without us to everyone. But instead, He chooses to use you and me to do that. In the same way, God could have chosen to give equally maternal material blessings to everyone. But for some reason, He, in His wisdom, He has chosen to use us to help distribute those things. And we understand that He is the one that gives all those things. When we do that, we begin to understand contentment of what He does give. We no longer chase after the pretty things just because they grab our attention for a moment. But we learn to be content in what we have now. And we are finally on this point, we are unmoved by what fails. The mark of the church, we're content. We're unified in grace that has brought us together. We understand our true need is for a Savior and that everything else is blessing. And we are unmoved by what fails. It makes us different. Look there in chapter, going back to chapter 6, he says 
But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's important that we note here that money is a root. It's not the root. It's also important for us to note here that money in and of itself is ethically and morally neutral. You lay a $5 bill on the floor and it's neither good nor, nor bad. It is our pursuit of that money and our use of that money that create problems at times. Not always, but at times. In the same way, sometimes our pursuit of that and our use of that can be used for great blessing. Paul here specifically, though, is focusing on the negative side of it. The picture here is kind of of an animal that desires the bait. A trap has been laid. The bait hanging out over a pit that's covered, and the bottom of it has spikes. And the animal in its desires and its, incra- its cravings for that easy meal jumps out onto the pit only to find that floor to be false and to find themselves impaled on the stakes below. That is the picture, that's the word picture that Paul is trying to paint for us in chapter 6. In the same way, so often we desire the the glittery things of life, we desire money, and so we jump out over that pit to grab that which we desire only to find that floor is false and to fall and to find ourselves impaled upon things that we would have never dreamed were there. We pursue monetary gain only to find out that we have sacrificed our family. We pursue monetary gain only to find that we have sacrificed moments and time. We pursue monetary gain only to find that we have sacrificed our relationship with Christ and damaged our souls in the process. Pursue monetary gain only to find what Paul says is true, that it can not, we cannot take it with us and it does not solve our problems. It fails us. And it's not just money. We chase after other things as well. We chase after prestige. We chase after the perfect job. We chase after experiences at times. We chase after pleasure at times in a way that is unhealthy only to find when we reach those things or seemingly reach those things that either A, they are always out of grasp or B, that once we have them, they do not satisfy. They do not make us content with life. They just make us want more. I I love Mountain Dew. It is the nectar of life. But what I find is that it does not satisfy my thirst. The more Mountain Dew I drink in a day, the more that I want. I, I could, like, literally yesterday I was in one of those days where I hadn't slept well the night before. I knew it was going to be a long day of, of working here, which, by the way, thank you for everyone that showed up to work yesterday. It was a good day of not only work but fellowship, and we're quite thankful for that. 
But I knew it was going to be a long day of work, so I started my day with a Mountain Dew, and you might as well have hooked an IV up to my arm. I haven't drank that much Mountain Dew in probably the three weeks before that. Like, I, I was like, give it to me and give it to me more. Because it never satisfies. It tastes good. It tastes better than water. Water, frankly, is just blah. Right? It tastes better. But when we consume it, all that we find is emptiness. In the same way, we consume we consume, we are consumed by a desire for more money. We're consumed for a desire for a better job. We're consumed with a desire of better experiences. We're consumed with this and with that and with that. And what we find when we get it is that we're not content. We're not satisfied. That is not the mark of a believer. That's not the mark of the church. That is the mark of a false teacher, one who does not understand the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we are to be unified in grace. We're to understand that our true need is one for a Savior, and we are to be unmoved when the world says, chase this. We're to say, no, that's not what's important. There are better things, things that last. And it is when we understand this and when we find contentment in Jesus Christ that we are ready to take the next step that Paul talks about in verse 11. He says, but as for you, O man of God, which by the way is such a wonderful call back to the prophets of the Old Testament. He said, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue, and really the idea here is pursue rather. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. When we learn contentment, when we find satisfaction in Jesus Christ rather than finding satisfaction in the emptiness of this world, then we are prepared to fight the good fight. And indeed, we know that there is a battle. This morning you talked about persecution and the reality of persecution in the life of the believer. The reality that we have an enemy that seeks to devour us, that we have an enemy that seeks to distract us, that we have an enemy that seeks to, to lessen our ability to accomplish the purpose that we have been placed here for, that we have an enemy that would desire nothing more than to take those that are lost and keep them in the dark until it is too late. We are in a battle. I think one of the great lies of Satan that has probably been the most pervasive and destructive, especially in our culture and in our day, is that Satan has convinced us that we're not. That we're not in a battle. That everything's hunky-dory. That everything's fine. When the truth is, is that we are in need of warriors. Of those that will stand up for the truth. And we must find contentment. As we find contentment, as we understand this fight, we will pursue the right thing. If you're distracted by money, if you're distracted by the things of this world, then you will miss that which is most valuable. Paul tells Timothy, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. These are the things of value. These are the things that will last. Pursue the right thing. 
if you're going to do fight the fight. Persist. Persist. He says, hold on to the confession. Hold on to eternal life to which you were called. There's part of this that we miss sometimes as Christians is that we miss the idea that we, this is a daily struggle that must take place. It's a daily need. It's a daily desire that should be in our hearts. One of the, last year we had the challenge to read biographies of great saints that have gone before us. Not to put them on a pedestal, not to make them better than anybody else, but just to see their lives and to see an example of, of what our faith can look like in a practical terms. And one of the things that we see in those biographies when we, when we study the lives of those that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and found contentment in Him is that it is a daily thing. It's not a once a week thing. It's not a here, a little here and a little there thing. When we find our contentment in Christ, we persist in the faith through the ups and the downs. I think of Abraham most often when I think of this term. We read the book of Genesis and we read the story of Abraham and we get the highlights. And yet if we are not careful, it's easy to think that all those chapters happen in quick succession, one right after another, that Abraham's life was filled with these big moments. But when we read carefully, what we understand is that those moments are separated by years and sometimes decades. What was he doing in the meantime? He was pursuing the right thing and he was persisting in the faith through the everyday moments, so that when the big moments came, he was ready. Brother and sister, if you proclaim Jesus Christ and your Savior, are you persisting every day through the highs and lows? Are you finding contentment in him? No matter what the life circumstance, no matter where you're tempted, are you, is he your treasure day in and day out? Are you persisting in the faith? And then lastly, we participate. He, ch- he switches subjects kind of seemingly in verse 17. He says, as for the rich of this present age, he tells them not to trust in the things of this earth, but he says rather that in verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Participation is important. It's easy for us to fall into the trap of consumerism even inside of the church. But that's false teaching. False teaching says that the faith of Jesus Christ is about you. That the church is all about what you want and what you can get from it. Rather, what we are called into as brothers and sisters in Christ is servanthood to the great King. And we serve at the pleasure of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So let us participate. Not just consume. Not just say what what the world can do for or what the church can do for us. But let us look to see where we can serve one another. With our time. With our efforts. And yes, at time with our resources. We must pursue. We must persist. We must participate. Brothers and sisters, this is good news for now. I want to end with this. This morning we have talked about three things. We've talked about knowing the truth, knowing our true need, knowing Jesus Christ who can satisfy that need, 
We've talked about being content, about being satisfied with what God has given us. And we have talked about having a purpose that we are to participate in the faith for the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, tell me that's not what the world is looking for. That when you meet people on the street, and when you watch the news, when you look at media that we consume on a daily basis, that these are the things that they desire. They just don't know where to find them. They desire truth. They desire contentment and satisfaction. They desire to have a purpose for their lives. They just don't know where to find it. I think in some ways we have oversimplified the gospel to say that it's all about heaven. And certainly it is. Certainly one of the great blessings of the gospel is that we will know Christ not just now, but we will know Him forever in a place with no more tears, in a perfect new world forever and ever. But let us not forget that the gospel is not just about that, but it is good news for now. It's good news for now. When I don't know how many times I hear it over and over when I visit hospitals or when we're dealing with the loss of, of someone that we care about, the phrase, I don't know how people do this without faith. And certainly that is true. Certainly that should be on our hearts as we go through difficult times. But do we think that way throughout our days? Throughout the normal day do we think, I don't know how people do this without Christ. There is better. We know truth. We can know contentment. We can have purpose for every day of our life. The gospel is good news for today just as much as it is good news for eternity. Do we live that way? Do we live that way? Do people look at our lives and say, wow, they, there's something different about them. They are content. doesn't mean they're lazy. You can be content and be very hardworking. You can be content and be driven, even. But do people look at your life and say, they are content. They are satisfied, and it's not by anything that's apparent to us. They are content in their situation. They're content and satisfied by their fam in their family. They're content in their financial situation. But we would say that all of those things could be better. What, what is there for them? We say it is Jesus Christ because he meets our one true need. Can we say that? Do we live that way? I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up. Living that way also means proclaiming that to others. Learning how to respond to someone who is obviously seeking something. Learning that to identify, hey, this person's struggling with contentment. This person's struggling with truth. This person's struggling with purpose in their life. And helping them to see that all of those things can be found in Jesus Christ. But in order to begin to think that way, in order to begin to communicate that way, then we need to begin to live that way. So that's my prayer this morning that we would understand the great contentment and satisfaction in Jesus Christ for ourselves, that we may better communicate that to a world that needs Him. Let me pray. Father, we come before You this morning, and certainly we do pray that prayer today.
Father, it is easy, and I am first to confess, Lord, it is easy to be distracted in this world. It's easy to be distracted by entertainment. It's easy to be distracted by things. It's easy to be distracted by all of the things that seemingly need our attention all the time. And to forget that you're the only thing that matters. To forget that you're the only thing that satisfies. Or that you are the water that causes us to never thirst again. Father, I pray, Lord, that we as a people, we as individuals, that we would find our satisfaction in you and in nowhere else. And that it would change how we act and how we live and how we communicate to other people. Lord, let us be hungry after you and nothing else. Father, forgive us when we don't. Lord, I thank you for your word at the end of Timothy. Grace be to you all. Father, we are in need of grace. Lord, we fail all the time. Lord, have grace on us this morning. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning, you can pray at your seats. You can come to the altar. You can stand, in your, stand where you're at. But let us respond to the word of God this morning.